0: This morning we're going to be in Matthew 19, at least sometime or another. So you can find Matthew 19. It'll at least be home base. It's where all of this started from. As you're turning there, maybe a couple things to encourage you with, unrelated to what we'll study this morning. Um, I'll ask you and encourage you to pray. I think we have 15 men uh, headed off to Southern California this next week to the Shepherds Conference to join about 3,000 other men from around the world, uh, pastors from all over the place, and leaders and should have a great time. Um, Some of the speakers will be R.C. Sproul, uh, Legan Duncan, uh, John MacArthur, Mark Dever, um, Steve Lawson, and some others. So we should have a great time together. Looking forward to that. So you pray for us. Pray for our wives, those of us who are married. Uh, It's especially especially complicated because next weekend is the Women's Conference with Martha Peace, and a bunch of us will be gone. Uh, Also, As a praise item, and just to encourage you, if you haven't been out to the new building lately, that might be a good thing to do. Though it is a construction site, let's not have mass chaos. Um, In fact, I may have, maybe I shouldn't have just said that. But if I were you, I'd want to go look at it. But uh, we were out there yesterday, Jonathan and I were, and it's just really encouraging to see the progress. You know, we're supposed to be in there sometime in May. May. Um, we'd like to be the, uh, or June at the latest, but that's coming really quickly. The, the The studs are up, the framing is up, and they're getting ready to put up the drywall, and you can actually see it all happening, and it's it's very encouraging after all of these years. Uh, no more cleanup in aisle five at Kmart, so I'm sure we'll have cleanups. But uh, anyway, that 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 was really encouraging to see um, and be encouraged by. Uh, What else was encouraging? I guess I kind of had a hard week. Uh, We're not going to do open mic and let's share our problems, but uh, it was a hard week, so I was encouraged by some of these other things. I was encouraged to get an email from Don Carson, DA Carson, this week, affirming that he'll be planning, Lord willing, to come here again in uh, 2008. Boy, we planned far ahead. Um, But that was good. One of my favorite authors and just a a very important thinker in our day. And glad that he's planning to come back here again. So it's great that God gives us the trials, right, to get us to pray and to keep us praying and uh, depending upon him. But he gives us this good encouragement, too, along the way to kind of keep us going. And I trust that's how it is in your life as well. Let's pray this morning once again. Father, thank you for this morning uh, again, Lord, this great opportunity we have to gather together. And, Lord, I am thankful for the building and the progress there and even all the challenges and all the things we don't even know about that happen as a result of doing a huge project like that. Thank you for the leaders who are involved, and thank you for their great attitudes of, of helping to lead us as that whole thing is coming to completion. Uh, it's just wonderful to be able to have a place that uh, can further facilitate ministry. Uh, we know it's not a permanent place because nothing on this earth is permanent, but we're thankful to have a, a place like that where we can do ministry, and it's even, a, a better, uh, even better stewardship ultimately for us to be able to do that, and we're thankful for that. Thank you for the way you continue to challenge us. Lord, thank you for all the men that are going to that conference and the way they'll be challenged there to be better leaders here. Thank you for the women's conference coming up and the great encouragement that can come from that. We do pray for Martha Peace, the speaker, that you would encourage her, that you would help her to be just the woman you would have her to be while she is here amidst our women. Lord, help us to love our wives enough to allow them to go to that. Uh, and to be praying for the, for the entire weekend next weekend or now as we turn to your word in a, in a formalized way together corporately we would simply ask that you would help us to understand you've given us your holy spirit as a teacher to be able to help us to understand things you you bring unbelievers uh illumination uh, to the point where they can understand things they couldn't understand before when they're converted and we would pray that You would just work mightily through your spirit this morning as we study your word together. In Jesus' name, Amen. For $37, you can purchase a book called How to Avoid the Ten Biggest Divorce Mistakes. And based upon the woman's experience who writes it, based upon her apparent sincerity might be $37 well spent. I don't know. I can't vouch for the book. I can't say anything for or against it, really. But even though I can't offer you her bonus of how to know when your divorce, divorce is going sour, I can, this morning, save you 37 bucks. And beyond the trivial, I can save you, by the grace of God, I can spare you a whole lot of heartache. I'm not going to offer you the ten biggest divorce mistakes. Rather, I'm going to offer you ten biblically informed, common sense ways to avoid a divorce. Ten biblically informed, common sense ways to avoid a divorce. That's the negative way of saying it. The positive way of saying it is ten... Biblically informed, common sense ways to have a great marriage. (laughs) So, if you feel negative today, take the negative title. (laughs) If you feel positive today, take the positive title. It doesn't matter, we're going to accomplish the same thing. What does the Bible say about marriage? That's what we're looking at. What does the Bible say about you as a Christian that would relate to marriage? And so, we're going to look at ten of these ways this morning. Uh, Correct that, we won't get done this morning, so uh, this is news to the audio ministry, sorry ladies. Um, We'll look at five this morning or so, and however many we don't get done with, we'll finish tonight. So we're going to do this all at once, I don't want to delay any longer. Um, So, ten of them total, we'll look at some this morning, some this evening. Uh, If you're thinking about uh, whether or not you should come back tonight or not, uh, the sex stuff comes tonight. So, for some of you, that means you for sure won't come. Uh, for some of you, it means you for sure will come. So, we're expecting record attendance at Omaha Bible Church on a Sunday night. Um, and I say that just to be funny and, and all of that, but in all seriousness, the Bible speaks to the issue. And the Bible is very clear about issues relating to sex and marriage and uh, it's important, and so, in, in all seriousness, you do want to make sure you're well aware of that, and we will talk uh, about that this evening. Well, let me add, as a footnote to what I just said, these uh, common sense ways. I didn't say these are guarantees, uh, because you cannot control your spouse. Uh, maybe that should be one of the, one of the points. <laughs> know that you can't control your spouse. It's not one of the points. Uh, but these are not guarantees. These are just some common sense approaches. Um, Also know that these things will apply to singles on one level or another. In fact, a couple of the points specifically talk uh, to you as a single person. And so it will be helpful in that regard. This all started in Matthew 19, and, and this is not going to be an exposition today of one given text, which is normal around here. If you feel this compelling need to have verse-by-verse exposition, um, go ahead and visit the audio ministry uh, and, and go ahead and get the message maybe from a couple of weeks ago uh, or some other day. But this all started in Matthew 19 because we're working through Matthew, the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew, and Jesus is confronted about a technicality in a sense. They were thinking they about divorce and they were trying to put Jesus on the spot so he would elaborate so really he would work himself into a corner is what they were trying to do to him and instead of just giving all the, the issues about divorce which he could have done and he did speak to he talked to them about marriage he explained to them really in effect they were missing the point about marriage that's why they were so messed up even about their views of divorce And that really started us going, and we looked at this text in Matthew 19 in some detail, and then last week we talked more broadly about what the Bible says about divorce. And so now this morning I want to look more broadly about what the Bible says about marriage. And I even have written down in my notes to remind myself, though I wish I didn't have to remind myself, that, Pat, you need to speak to people with broken hearts. Because that's true for some of you. And by the grace of God, I will do my best to have that perspective and had tried, have tried to have that perspective even as I prepare. Some of you don't have broken hearts, and I need to speak to you with maybe my own heart broken out of a desire to see you have a strong, godly marriage so you don't have to have a broken heart. So let's begin by looking at these ten common sense ways. Number one, fear God. Fear God. Fear God. Slash, or in other words, love God, because they go hand in hand and they go together. Let's start with the love side of things. If you want a strong marriage, it's got to start with not ten helpful ways, uh, not thirteen steps. Not, here's the plan, take this class and everything will be okay. It's not quite that simple. It's much bigger than that. It's much more significant than that. And I would want to every single time start with, you need to love God. You need to fear God. I need to fear God. I need to love God. The best way to keep me from divorcing my wife is for me to have a big view of God that has me consumed with loving God and fearing God. I would like you, if you would, to turn to Deuteronomy 6 to see really what is the magnum opus text about this matter of what it means. How about not just to be a believer, what it means to be a human being created in the image of God? Why are you on this earth? Someone who God has made and and made in His image and and really you belong to Him. Well, this is the passage that answers that question. Anyone who who would acknowledge that has been called by this text ultimately to respond to God by loving God. Unless we think this is just something from the Old Testament to the people of God there, it's repeated in the New Testament to the point where in Matthew 22, verse 38, Jesus says, this is the great and foremost commandment. This is the greatest commandment you will ever hear with your human ears. This is the most important thing in all of life. This right here, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel. It's not just related to Israel, though, because we see it repeated in the New Testament, even to the church. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The Jews would know this as the Shema, or the Shema. This great single statement, almost like their, their, their credo, their creed. This is their saying. This is their theme. What do we do? We say this because we're all about the reality, first and foremost, that there is one God. There is one God who is supreme. There is one God who is the creator. There is one God who is king. There is one God who is sovereign. One God. And He is our God. He goes on to say, verse 5, How do we respond to this one supreme God? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And Jesus even says, And with all your mind. Well, did they leave that out here? Well, I don't think they left it out here. I think the reason that Jesus can say mind is because it's getting at the same idea, the same reality. What's He saying? He's saying there is one God and you who profess to know this God should be radically, single-mindedly driven and moved to Be devoted and dedicated to Him. It's your it's your all in all, it's your everything to love God with every ounce of your being, with all that you are. That's what He's saying. So with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, etc, 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 everything that you are, if there is this one God, it is to be about Him. You are passionately, radically, solely devoted to Him and, and to Him and Him alone. This is the call for believers. It's been the call for believers throughout the ages. He goes on to say, here's just how radical he is about it. These words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. What is he saying? He's saying this has everything to do with everything you are as a person. This is what's really important to you so you talk to your kids about it. I mean, we teach our kids what first, second, third, and fourth downs are. We teach them what punting is. We teach them six points, extra point, two-point conversion. We teach them how to kick goals. We teach them how to run the bases. We teach them how to throw the ball. We teach them how to do all these things. And we end up talking about them a lot. If you're anything like, like my family, we just replace all that with wakeboarding stuff. But it's because it's what's important to us on one level or another. So you end up talking about it. Well, he's saying this is important to you because there's only one God and and he owns you and you belong to him and you love him. And so it's going to translate into this is just what you do all the time. You you live in a God-centered world. You live a God-centered life. You are not man-centered. You're not thing-centered. You're a God-centered person. And do notice, he isn't writing this to the clerics. He's not writing this to the priests. He's not writing this to the people who lead in ministry. He's writing this to the people. You know what? Here's your greatest thing in all of life. You need to be a God-centered person to the point where it consumes everything about you. I would even say, even well, everything. He, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and you shall they, they shall be as frontals on your forehead and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I mean, this is just thorough God-centeredness. Not for the ultra-spiritual. This is aimed at the populace. And again, Jesus reiterates it, calls it the great and foremost commandment. I have... I think I'm doing a huge disservice if I don't include this as a way to divorce-proof your marriage. I say this because if your number one passion in life that, that is bigger than any other passion, how about this, that, that ends up permeating even your other passions, even those sports, it permeates everything. If that's the case, and this one God that you say, I love and I want to follow him, this one God, if that's true, and that permeates everything, and he's designed marriage, and he's told you what marriage is supposed to be and what marriage is supposed to not be, guess what? You won't be able to help yourself, but, but do what he says about marriage. You won't be able to help yourself but do what he says about what you're supposed to do as your responsibility toward your wife or toward your husband or toward your kids. I mean, this is bigger than just marriage, but it certainly would include marriage. And so I think we, 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 again, we sell ourselves short when we don't put it in this perspective. We've got to have it come back to this perspective. I'm going to recognize he's the author and he's the author of it and he has a plan for it and he's my king that I'm supposed to love with every ounce of my being. I'm going to do what He says. Now, complementing is, this is the fear of God. Why don't you turn to Ecclesiastes, if you would, which is easy to find if you go to the middle of the Bible. You'll find the book of Psalms, and then Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes, followed by Song of Solomon. Ecclesiastes, this is a, the end of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, written by the man who's called, referred to as the wisest man ever, a man who knew what it was to have all the stuff in the world, to have all the pleasures in the world, to have everything you could ever ever think about having. And in the end, Ecclesiastes 12.13, the conclusion, when all has been heard, and I think when he says all, he can really mean all, is fear God and keep His commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring an act, every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. My friend, you are accountable. You are accountable. You should fear God. You should love God and fear God. Proverbs 1, we all know Proverbs 1, 7, whether you know that's where it is or not. The beginning of all wisdom... It's the fear of the Lord. I mean, it all starts. I mean, you can't even take a half baby step of showing wisdom unless you start with number one premise. Fear God. Tremble. Fear God. So when I utterly disregard what God has said, let's say, wisely about marriage and his plan for marriage, I prove myself rather quickly to be a fool. To be blunt, he's the all-knowing, all-wise God I'm supposed to love with every ounce of my being. So, if I choose to divorce my wife, and he's told me not to do that, I have no grounds to do that, I show myself to be a fool who does not fear God. And I don't show that, well, the problem was with my wife. I show the problem was with me and my lack of fearing God. And how about this? I show that the problem is I don't love God like I'm supposed to. It has to start there. My actions have so much to do with my perspective on God. Your actions have so much to do with your view of God. They reveal whether or not you're a man-centered person, a self-centered person, a material-centered person, or whether or not you're sold out to God. And you might think, that's not the Christianity I know, I thought it was all about helping me. Again, we we uh, preachers of all people should be flogged for not emphasizing what the Bible, first and foremost in the Old Testament, first and foremost in the New Testament, emphasizes. And that is, it's all about God and consuming yourself with having a passion for Him. And so let's start there. Let's work on that level. Let's not say, well, we really need some help with marriage, so let's not talk about God. Let's just talk about marriage. Too many times we blow it. Let's saturate ourselves. Let's saturate our minds and our thinking. And let's saturate our meditation. And let's saturate everything about our lives with this need to be moved to loving God most of all. That's Christianity 101. And again... If this is your passion, you are consumed with loving God, it's going to take care of all kinds of other problems, not just this one. I mean, so far, point number one would fit, wouldn't it? Any topic I would ever talk about. <laughs> so when we do, so, do a seminar on, you know, Christ in the workplace, <laughs> how to be more successful, I mean, whatever you want to talk about, anything, it's got to start here. But it seems like we short-circuit everything and we forget this sometimes. This is, this is just the key to life. Number two, it corresponds to number one, the second biblically informed common-sense way to avoid a divorce is to be godly. It's to be godly. I'll just go out on a, go out on a limb, go out on the edge and say, I submit to you that where two people are godly people, they won't get a divorce. I understand that that's not always the case, where one person is and one person is not. I'm not talking about that for now. Where you are godly and your spouse is godly, therefore that should be your number one desire, there won't be a divorce. Now some of you might be thinking, I know two godly people and they did get a divorce. Well, when I say godly, I don't mean that they profess to be a Christian. When I say godly, I don't mean when they were little, they signed a card and the pastor signed their Bible. And when I say godly, I don't mean they came forward at a revival meeting. When I say godly, I mean somebody who follows Jesus Christ. Turn with me, if you would, to John 14, verse 15. Unless you haven't memorized, John 14:15. You're needing to go to the New Testament, and then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's repeated in other places in a similar fashion. But if somebody is a godly person, that means they follow Jesus Christ. They love Jesus Christ. What godly person wouldn't say they love Jesus Christ? Well, John fourteen fifteen is a good text for us to go to when it comes to what it really means to love Christ, because Jesus says in verse fifteen, If you love me, I mean that's just that's the basic of basics of godliness, they love Christ. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Again, it's really easy and simple. Maybe not easy to do. But if I've got a godly person here who who loves Christ, a godly person here who loves Christ, therefore their desire is going to be to to keep His commandments, they're not going to get a divorce because He forbids it. Pretty straightforward. So what do I want to do? I want to pray that my wife is godly. (laughs) And she wants to pray that i 'm godly, and I want to pray that i 'm godly, and we want to pray for personal godliness, and we want to pray that godliness would be something that affects our lives and, and it permeates our lives. Maybe I should even ask the simple question i guess i 'm learning a lot in, in my short little life of ten years of pastoral ministry don 't assume anything. How do I accomplish godliness? Let me ask you, can you explain to me what it means to be a godly person? What it means coming to church on Sunday? Coming to a church that teaches the Bible? Well, that would be part of it, because the Bible says we're not to forsake the assembling together of ourselves, fellowship one another, that's good. But when you stop and think about being godly, what does being godly mean? Well, you love Jesus Christ, and you're obviously committed to the basics of the faith, which would be even that Deuteronomy 6, Matthew 22, loving God, obviously that would include that. And in loving God is going to assume that you're going to want to do what God says, so let's get real practical about it. Alright, I've got the Bible here. I, I guess if I'm going to love God, I need to know who He is, and He's revealed Himself in His Word, so I've got to study the Bible, I've got to know who God is, if I'm really going to love Him with my whole life. So not only do I, I need to know who God is in here, I need to know what his, his will is, so I can not only know who He is, I can actually do what He says. i got to get involved in not only reading the Bible, I need to understand the Bible so I can apply the Bible. What does a godly person look like? A person who knows what God says about himself. To know what God says about uh, human beings. To know what God says about what we're supposed to do. I'm well on the way to saying I need to to understand the Bible. But I need to not only understand the Bible, because I don't want to be like those that James talks about, who are hearers of the Word and not doers. They delude themselves. So I've got to work on doing what the Bible says. All right, godly person knows the Bible, practices the Bible, and then the Bible starts unpacking what we're supposed to do, and I'm learning more. What am I learning? I'm learning that I'm supposed to stop sinful actions, and I'm supposed to do godly actions. I'm supposed to put off, the Scripture uses the terms, I'm going to put off sinful actions, like the sinful way that I talk naturally, my sinful attitude that I have naturally. And I'm thinking like Ephesians 4. And I need to replace those sinful actions, and I need to put on godly talk, and I need to, to put on a godly attitude. And, and I go through my life, I find out this is a constant. I'm constantly replacing sinful actions with godly actions. That's a godly person. A godly person is going to spend time with other people who are godly so that they can help me to grow and learn, and we can do the one another's together godly person is going to learn as they're studying this Bible that that's something you're supposed to do. godly person is going to learn that you're supposed to rely upon God, so now we've got prayer involved. It's not that complicated. And how about this? If you really love Jesus Christ in the way the Bible says believers do, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, He is just your passion. You've got this passion for Christ. You're going to want to know what He said. It seems to me that it's not this idea of, well, you've got to to really twist Pat's arm. Boy, you really ought to, you know, you better be reading your Bible, and you better be studying, and you you, you better be fellowshipping, and you better be showing up with other believers. What are you trying to do to me? Break my arm? (laughs) What I need is a heart for God that loves God, and I'm probably going to be hounding you. Hey, hey, I have a question. I need to understand this better. Uh, help me out here. I, uh, help me to understand how I can do this in my marriage because I know I've got this sinful attitude that I'm fighting and I want to replace it with a godly attitude. Could, could you help me with that? Because, you know, I've got one thing figured out and that is that I love God. So I want to do what He says. All of that to say, you've got to be godly. You want, you want a great marriage? Be godly yourself. Pray for your spouse to be godly. You probably don't need another marriage seminar. Not even against marriage seminars. I think I can say nothing else this morning. And if you really got points one and two, you know enough. If you really get this much, you can just forget about everything else. Because you know what? The other things are important. They're all biblical. But eventually, you're going you're to get that stuff figured out. Because it all starts here. It all begins here. You know, all the stuff we do, we have, a, we have a women's conference coming up, and lots of you are signed up. People from other states and other cities, and lots of people are coming. We're so glad to be able to host that and have that. But I would venture to guess that the speaker whose writings I'm familiar with won't say anything new. Sorry, can't cancel, can't get your money back. (laughs) She won't say anything new. If she does, we'll probably have a problem (laughs) if we won't ask her back. (laughs) We do men's breakfasts bring speakers in, gather together. You know what? I haven't really learned much. But what happens is, is I come and I'm reminded of what I'm supposed to do as I love God and I'm pursuing godliness. And as a result of that, that does help my marriage and it helps me and it helps my family. But most importantly, what I hope happens is, is it catapults me upward to Christ-centeredness and thinking about Him so the other stuff takes care of itself. And so we'll keep doing these things. And we'll, we'll keep. I'll, I'll do my other eight points. Because we do want to work through these things together, and they are important. I want my wife to be godly. I can be godly, so then, then, then we can be godly together. And we can have a common desire, and a common thrill, if you will, and a common drive. Sort of like the local church is supposed to have. Like in Philippians one twenty seven, the Philippian church is called to stand firm with one mind, striving together for the progress of the gospel, the furtherance of the gospel. Yeah. Just like we're supposed to do that as a local church and and get over all of our isms and all of our our personal quirks and difficulties and all this kind of stuff, our self-consumption. Hey, you know what? I'm a sinner living with a sinner who tolerates a sinner, but we love Christ and we're growing and we love the reality of, of, of seeking Him together and so we don't have to fight and bicker and have all of these major problems because we're really focused on accomplishing the same thing. That's how it's supposed to be in the local church. It's how it's supposed to be in the marriage too. Let's move on to a third biblically informed common sense way to avoid Divorce. Know your role and pursue it. Know your role and pursue it. This is part of being godly, by the way. All of these are, but breaking it out for emphasis. My pastoral experience has been, which is not authoritative, but my pastoral experience has been that one of the most misunderstood issues in all of Christianity when it comes to a husband and wife relationship is this. Husbands and wives think that their role responsibilities are conditional. Here's what I mean. I'm Joe Schmo husband, and I think that I'll start being a loving leader, as I'm supposed to be according to Scripture, as soon as my wife Sally Schmoe Christian, <laughs> starts doing what she's supposed to do, which is follow my loving leadership. And here I am, Sally Schmo Christian, I don't know how I'm going to stop at this thing, and I'll start following his leadership as soon as he starts loving me and being the man that he needs to be. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. And I think if we talk to anybody who's had any kind of counseling experience with professing Christians even, and they would say, yep, happens all the time. I will take every opportunity I can possibly get to stand before Christians like you and, and, and reiterate this. Husband's role is not conditioned upon the wife doing her role. Wife's role is not conditioned upon the husband doing his role. I'll show you in Scripture in just a minute. Let's look at some role passages, and you'll see that it happens. It's not, well, I'll do that if... And I'll do that if... It's just not that way. And I explain that to people, and they go, yeah. And then within, you know, minutes later, maybe... Well, if she would just start... And I want to say, if you would just shut up... (laughs) Let's look at some of these role passages. How about, let's start with husbands. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, very end of the Bible, you can just back your way up from Revelation and then the letters of John and then 2 Peter and 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3, we'll look at a couple of texts that deal with husbands and then a couple of texts that deal with wives. If there is one thing secondary to loving God, which is to be our passion, and pursuing godliness. If there's one thing after that, if you can get about your marriage, is is you're responsible to do what you're responsible to do. Stop thinking about your wife and her responsibilities. Now, lovingly pray for her. Stop thinking about your husband and his responsibilities. Lovingly pray for him, but just do what you're supposed to do. 1 Peter three seven. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will need not be hindered. All right, there's one of your responsibilities, to live with her in an understanding way. That is one of your roles in that marriage relationship. It's pretty interesting that wives are not told to to do that. I hope they do anyway. But anyway, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's not a conditional thing. This is what you're supposed to do. Okay? Your wife is different than you are. Stop acting like you want to be married to a man, because I know you don't. You want to be married to a woman, trust me. And so she's different than you are, and so you need to respect that and love that about her, which will lead you to living with her in an understanding way. Stop saying, I just don't understand women. You never will. <laughs> but you're supposed to be understanding of that. You're different. You're different. And I do that in premarital and premarital, postmarital counseling. Guys, stop trying to get your wife to act like you. She's different. Appreciate that. They're different. And we're different. Okay. No ifs about that. Now Ephesians chapter 5. Keep working your way to the left. If you get to the Gospels and Acts, you went too far. You get to Acts, then Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Ephesians 5. and We'll look at Ephesians 5 for wives also. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives. Notice it doesn't say if. Just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. And that would be a whole other sermon in and of itself. Did, did, did Christ look at the church and she was doing just what she was supposed to do and she was so lovely? No. Dead in trespasses and sins. Enemy status supposed to love your wife just like Christ loved the church so that He might sanctify her, sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she would be holy and blameless so husbands, verse 28 ought also to love their, wives, their own wives as their own bodies that is worth some meditation and rereading. Re- 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 because you care for yourself. You take care of yourself. He who loves his own wife loves himself. You're, you're one flesh. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. And no ifs, ands, or buts about it. This is your responsibility, men, to your wife. It's not conditional. I've said to men before, you could be married to the female version of Jabba the Hut. Gross image, huh? It wouldn't matter. Would not matter. Your responsibility is the same. Praise God, none of you are married to that creature. You don't need to go there for sake of time. Colossians 3.19 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Unconditional. Don't be embittered against them. Guys, stop waiting for your wife to do what's right. Before you do what's right, you do what's right. Simple. I guarantee you it will take care of tons of problems. Tons. Now, wives and husbands. Colossians 3.18 says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Yeah, I'm going to do that, Pastor. But this guy, if he would just start doing the right... No... It's not conditioned upon Him doing the right thing. You just need to do the right thing. Then Ephesians, since you're still there, Ephesians 5.22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. There you go. And apart from Him telling you, commanding you to do something that is sinful, or forbidding you to do something that God commands in the spirit of Acts 4 and 5, you follow. There's a place where you draw the line and you say, I, I can't do this because I'd be sinning against my Lord, just like Peter said when they told him to stop preaching.
1: But up until that point,
0: I, I, I follow if I'm a wife. Now, there is an if statement for wives. First Peter, go back there, 1 Peter 3. And sometimes, maybe with ill motive, I say to a wife, so it sounds to me like you have an ungodly husband. Oh, yeah, he is ungodly. And, and it sounds to me, would it be fair to say your husband's not obeying the Word of God? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And they're waiting for me to say, therefore, you know what? Yeah, I think he's a bumbling idiot too. You can do whatever you want. I might say the first part, but I won't say the second part. <laughs> I won't really. You all know, if you've done anything with me on a one-on-one basis, I'm too nice. But anyway, First Peter 3.1, alright, what if they're disobedient? In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even, there it is, if, oh yeah, if he's not godly, I don't, I don't have to be involved, no. Even if any of them are disobedient to the word. They may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. You may be married to a spiritual knucklehead of a husband. But you've got the same responsibility to him as if you were married to one who is not a spiritual knucklehead. And you hope he doesn't stay in that status. But your role is not conditioned upon Him fulfilling His role. Some of you are thinking, but you don't know my husband. You don't know my wife. You're right, I don't. And God has not, thank the Lord, has not given me the grace to deal with your husband or your wife. But He's not given you the grace to deal with me. <laughs> or the grace to deal with my wife. But you're right, I don't know your wife and I don't know your husband. And again, after 10 years of pastoral ministry, plus, I'm more convinced than ever that I don't know your spouse. Because I'm more convinced than ever that what you see on the outside, too many times, sadly, just ain't true. Roles are not conditional. They are not. We've got to get that through in our minds. Second common misconception that we have as Christians when it comes to marriage, and I'll just cover this briefly. Common misconception is we reverse our roles. I think I'm not supposed to be the leader, so I just don't lead. Or I get a bad attitude because of my wife, and so I don't lead. And my wife takes over leadership responsibility, maybe because I'm not leading, and she leads and creates all kinds of difficulties. And we won't spend a lot of time on it today, but we just just gotten going over what the roles are. This is a result of the fall, by the way. It goes back to Genesis. There's something in us as men that, that, that we want to do two, one of two things. We, we either want to lead with an iron fist in some sort of tyrannical way, which is not right. You're not living with your wife in an understanding way, you're not showing the fruit of the Spirit, etc., etc., etc. Or, we want to be Mr. Adam, by the way, and just be passive and let the human race fall into sin. By neglecting our loving leadership responsibilities. Sometimes people say, why, why is it that Adam led the human race into sin? Isn't it, Eve? Men like to do that. <laughs> no, it was Adam because he was in charge. <laughs> And guess who's responsible? Into all eternity. You don't see. And the first Eve led into sin. No, the first Adam did. Responsibility. And so, guys, don't you dare think that you can be passive and not assume the leadership responsibility and then when everything blows up, you can say, ha, you really screwed up. It's not my fault, though. Let Adam and Eve be the example. It is. You are responsible. I am responsible. So, by the grace of God, we want to say, Lord, help us! Help me to lead, but not to be a tyrant! Help me to lead lovingly, laying my life down for my wife like I'm supposed to and and sacrificing for her, living with her in an understanding way and and having that kind of loving leadership. And, And that doesn't come naturally to me, God. I know it doesn't. I know it doesn't personally and I know it doesn't theologically. And if I'm a wife, I've got to say, God, please help me. Please. Please help me. Help me to follow His leadership. And help me to have a good attitude. And, and, and help, me, help me not to follow in a bitter way. That way, help me to really follow and to really support my man. Because it doesn't come naturally to me. Because I, I don't want to do that. But you've got to know what your roles are. You've got to know what they are. And then pursue the role. It seems like it's getting worse and worse in our world that we're living in. We're going through one of those cycles where we don't even know what the roles are. So, of course, we can't even work on them. So, no wonder things are in such a mess. We don't need to be in the dark as Christians. We can see what the roles are, what it's supposed to be, and pursue them. I like 1 Peter 3.7. I don't want to leave on that note. 1 Peter 3.7 where it talks about husbands um, living with their wives and dealing with their wives as a fellow heir. That's good and that's important. Yes, you're supposed to lead, but you're dealing with with a peer in Christ. Galatians 3 would have it be clear. You're dealing with a peer in Christ. You might have a different role or responsibility. Fellow heir, equal heir. You're in this together. It's good for us men to remember. I'm going to have to go really fast tonight. We better stop with three. Um, number four is going to be prioritizing the husband and wife relationship, not the relationship of parent and child. Maybe much to your shock. Prioritizing your relationship. We'll also talk about prioritizing a biblical sex life. We'll also talk about being sexually pure to avoid a divorce. We'll talk about loving your children as a true biblical motivation for avoiding a divorce. And we will do those things tonight. We're also celebrating the Lord's Supper tonight, and so you want to get your heart ready for that and be prepared for that as well. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank You for this morning and thank You for leading even this morning. Lord, it's great for me to look out even as I was preaching today and see that there are engaged couples who want to do it right. It's great to see that. that As believers, they want to do the right thing and the desire is there. That's really awesome. It's also great seeing faces of people who, while they're not perfect, they really are pursuing Christ-likeness in the home and that there really are people out there who are godly and there are people who have a, a good, strong marriage that allows them to help the rest of us. Lord, there are also those who are struggling. And things are, are disastrous. One wonderful thing, one of the wonderful things about being believers is always being able to have hope. And I pray that through Your Word and the power of Your Holy Spirit who works mightily, that it would be hope. And there would be change. Change that would result ultimately in the glory of Christ and the enjoyment of marriage. You've given us so many things. Marriage is to be great. It's to be something we enjoy and a great blessing. Help us, Lord, to diligently seek after You in regard to these things so that You'd do great things in our lives so that we would, in fact, have phenomenal marriages from the spiritual unity to the sexual aspect, to the friendship side of things, and everything else, that we would have great marriages as a result of Your great grace, even though there's some hard work to be done to see that happen. In Jesus' name, Amen.